Are you funky enough to roll with Groove Champion? Well, let's find out with Interstate 76 this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 32 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, and I am here, as I am every other week, to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Uh, sitting here, it's a, <laughs> it's a pretty hot day. It's kind of the hottest day we've had, uh, had yet on my, in my car on the way back from the, uh, from the gym it said it was 33 degrees uh, Celsius. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's pretty damn hot for me. Plus, I'm not sure what it is with the Humidex because it is damned humid outside. Just had a tough workout. I'm sweaty. I'm tired, but I'm here to podcast and uh, I'm ready for a really, really good and interesting show. So I'm podcasting on Monday. It's uh, June 24th. So Bon Saint-Jean to uh, all of my Quebec listeners. It's the Saint-Jean-Baptiste Summer holiday, super big, uh, big holiday in my home province of Quebec. So everyone there has the day off. Sadly, I don't live in Quebec anymore, so I don't get the day off. However, this weekend is the Canada Day long weekend, so I'm going to enjoy a long weekend back home, uh, back home in Montreal for that. And uh, shortly thereafter, of course, is the Fourth of July for all my American listeners. Happy uh, pre-Fourth of July to you guys. I know you're going to have a a good holiday there as well. But enough about summer holidays. They're only just beginning and there's a lot of those left. Let's get on to the news. So it looks like Double Fine is, uh, is funding two new games. No, they, they are not launching a third and fourth Kickstarter. Uh, they've actually entered an agreement with Indie Fund. Now, Indie Fund appears to be, from my very cursory research, uh, a, a, a VC group, that's a, a venture capital group, put together by, uh, by a group of successful indie devs who, uh, who fund other indie developers under kind of a very flexible model. You know, there's uh, very flexible uh, repayment terms, very flexible timelines and all that kind of thing. So uh, under Indie Fund, it'll be, uh, it'll be very interesting to see both what, what Double Fine comes out with and, uh, and other projects that Indie Fund backs in the future now that I know they exist. It seems like they've actually been around since 2010, but this is, uh, this is the first I hear of them. So, of course, they can't have been that important until now. Ha, ha, ha. No, that's not true at all. Anyways, uh, Indie Fund's something I'm going to keep an eye on going forward. Uh, next, I'm a bit behind the times here, but, uh, but for people that love Total Annihilation, uh, you should jump over to Steam and take a look at a game called Planetary Annihilation, uh, which is the successor to the original Total Annihilation. It's, it's being developed by members of the original Total Annihilation team and successfully funded on Kickstarter way back in September of 2012. Uh, the game is currently in alpha, and you can gain early access on Steam under, I guess what we could call for the moment of an interesting uh, payment model. Uh, so as not to invalidate early Kickstarter supporters, alpha access to the game is set at $90. Now this gets you full access to the alpha builds, the forums, the developer talks, all, all that kind of stuff. Now once the game enters beta, I guess I even closed beta, the price will drop to $60. Now, the team is taking a little bit of heat for this approach since uh, you know a lot of people are saying you're effectively paying a premium for access to an unfinished game. 
But, uh, you know, I, I can see two things about this whole approach. One, it does keep the Kickstarter supporters feeling kind of special in that they got in from the beginning. You know, they may have given even more money and, you know, just kind of saying, oh, well, you know, after the Kickstarter, if you didn't give us money right off the bat, if you just buy the game now for 50 or 60 bucks, well, you get in everything that the Kickstarter people got. But uh, on top of that, it also engenders more involved testing since anyone who's getting in at $90 will likely want to make good on their kind of more premium investment. So if you do feel like dropping 90 bucks on early access, check out Planetary Annihilation over on Steam. I will link the, uh, the Steam page in the show notes as I tend to do. Now, in Jane Jensen news, we haven't talked about Jane Jensen's uh, Mobius project for a while. Uh, so her Mobius project, the paranormal detective adventure project we've been talking about for a while now, uh, has released a few new screenshots and a little bit more info regarding the game. Uh, the screenshots look interesting enough. I'm not going to say that they look AAA or next gen or anything like that. They look like it looks like perfectly serviceable, modern adventure game graphics. They're not going retro. There is a this is high res. Uh, and Jane, on top of these you know, interesting screenshots, Jane Jensen has also said the full game will be launching for both Windows and Mac this December. I guess we shall see uh, if they keep to that schedule. Keeping with the Sierra Kickstarters and Leisure Suit Larry Reloaded news, uh, I went back and checked because I was getting curious about uh, the release status of the game. So I went and checked the last backer update, which went out on June 17th, and it says that the release of Larry Reloaded is imminent and that this will be the first of the of the Kiera of the Sierra Kickstarters to ship. Uh, again, I'm on top of it, and I'll let everyone know the moment things go live. So it looks like, based on that, they are on track for their end of June uh, revised release date. Finally, uh, if you guys remember the last show, you still have two weeks to get into my Retro Game Music Bundle contest. So just drop an email to podcast at umbcast.com with the subject Music Bundle Contest to get this huge amount of game music, including three different albums from Duke Nukem, the fully remastered Miss soundtrack, Jazz Jackrabbit, some other modern games, um, just so much stuff here. Go check it out if uh, you're not sure. Just uh, I believe it's at gamemusicbundle.com if uh, if you're interested. And you know what? If you already bought it, you can uh, you can win a code for for a friend someone else you think might like it so yeah drop me a line there's there's a decent amount of entries but not so many that everyone doesn't have a very very good chance of winning so drop me a line music bundle contest podcast at umbcast.com you're listening to the upper memory block podcast time for Okay, let's roll right along here onto the main topic for the show. This week, we are discussing a very interesting game series, which I guess we can call the Interstate Series, published and developed by Activision. The main game series consists of two games, along with a spin-off series consisting of three more games. The first, Interstate 76, released back in the year 1997. Thanks to everyone that reminded me I was a year off at the end of last show when I said it came out in 1998. That is not the case. Interstate 76 came out in 1997, so I was wrong about that last week. So as we tend to do, let's talk genre. Interstate 76 is a vehicular combat game. We've seen one of these before with MechWarrior, MechWarrior 2, I guess the MechWarrior series. This genre covers a very broad range of games, but in general, they all do have some common elements. Firstly, you as the player, are generally placed in direct control of a single vehicle. 
The vehicle is generally ground-based, so say a car, a tank, a go-kart, a motorcycle, a boat, something to that effect. Like with space sims or flight sims, vehicular combat sims tend to be mission or level-based. Some are straight-up run-and-gun missions, others have more complex objectives. Some are heavily story-oriented and can have changing objectives, mid-mission cutscenes, and all other manner of interactive and non-interactive elements. Others may just require you to blow up everything in sight. Indeed, the final and likely most important aspect of vehicular combat games is weaponry. Your vehicle is generally equipped with some kind of weapons, from the vehicle itself via ramming, to machine guns, to rocket launchers, flamethrowers, anything your mind can fathom that you can put onto a vehicle you've probably seen in one vehicular combat game or another. So let's get out of the general and into the specific and start discussing Interstate 76. So after the last show on Duke Nukem, I guess I subconsciously went in the complete opposite direction. Where Duke Nukem had a cursory story at best, Interstate 76 is a very, very story-focused game. In fact, the story in this game is of a very high quality. It starts off with a four-minute-long cinematic that puts us into the world. Since it's quite visual, I'm not going to play the whole thing. I'll only play a couple little clips from it, and we'll go through. We'll begin on a black screen. White text appears. It says, The economy is in the throes of a deep recession. Flames of riot rule the cities. Gas is expensive and scarce. Crime is rampant. No one seems to care. This is a time for vigilantes. So we drop right into the middle of the action. It's July 3rd, 1976. A car with a female driver is being chased by an unknown assailant outside of Lubbock, Texas. Both cars are driving fast, and both are armed with what appear to be machine guns mounted on their roofs. While trying to evade the chase car, the woman tries to contact someone on her CB radio. Stampede, this is Vixen. Code 6-pack, repeat code 6-pack. Up I-82, east of Lubbock. The sewer, modified 73 Porsche Vomanta. Creepers heavily armed. We'll seek mode 4 rendezvous. Repeat mode 4 rendezvous. She then loses control of her car, veers off the road, and crashes into a nearby junkyard. All is quiet except the steaming and popping of her slowly cooling down engine and the desert crickets. Her pursuer is nowhere to be found. Knowing this isn't over, she grabs a handgun and gets out of the car. A short distance away, her pursuer comes to a quiet stop and gets out of his car. He's wearing a suit and sunglasses and is holding a pair of dice. A sound catches her off guard. The woman looks away and is suddenly shot from behind by the man in the suit. Come out. Show yourself. Look, I don't have time for this crap. He approaches to finish her off. Before he can, though, her partner Stampede blows through the gates of the junkyard, firing out of his side window. The man in the suit runs, and Stampede is left to tend to his friend. Sadly, all he can do is hear her last request. 
find my brother, tell him. We then break into a very cool credit sequence reminiscent of a 70s action TV show, complete with fake actor names and glamour shots along with interstitial action scenes. It's all very, very fun. Now this is where we begin the game. The story is such an integral part of the gameplay that we'll break into that section now, but continue talking about story kind of throughout the whole description of the gameplay and other stuff like that. You're so, once the funky intro is done, we end up at the main menu. Here we have a few options. You can play in melee mode. This is basically skirmish mode where you can play against computer controlled or online opponents in the multiplayer option. Uh, you can choose to drive a multitude of cards with any weapons loadouts and really just have a good time. You can also play scenarios. Like other games, scenarios are short standalone episodes that have a single objective. Again, like in regular melee, you can choose from many cars to complete scenarios. If we have time, we may talk about scenarios a little bit more later, if I also remember that I mentioned that just now. But anyways, uh, where the main thrust of the gameplay resides is in the TRIP mode. TRIP is an acronym standing for Total Recreational Interactive Production. What it really means is campaign mode or story mode. Uh, starting your trip fast forwards us a little bit in time to the first of a series of intermissions. These are effectively cutscenes telling us the story of the game. In this first intermission, we meet the game's protagonist, Groove Champion. Groove is a reflection of 70s cool. Blonde, long-haired, with a handlebar mustache and aviator sunglasses, he definitely fits the times. Well, he's already heard about his sister Jade's murder, Stampede, whose real name we soon learn is Taurus, explains the rest of Jade's last words. Blueberry. Thanks. Are you ready? I'm not gonna play this game. I've never killed anyone, Taurus. This place is a stinking mess. Well, who the hell you think's gonna clean up around here if we don't? Well, who did this to her? I don't know, man. The same damn fool's been tearing shit up around here. Pigs don't do shit. They're probably in on it. I'm gonna find him, Groove. Find him and kill him. <laughs> she said you'd be scared. Said that's why you could never beat her times on the track. Jesus, Taurus, will you stop? I don't need your crap right now, and I sure as hell don't need my sister hassling me from the grave. Jade was always a better racer than me, man. No damn secret. And now you tell me she was a, a vigilante? I mean, guns? On her piranha? It's not Jade, man. No, Groove, you're wrong. Jade was a fighter, my partner. She and I and a handful of others are the closest thing to law around here. <laughs> but recently everyone's been turning up dead. Pacer X, uh, those Wolf Raider dudes in Oklahoma, Torque Daisy and Firefly, Spitfire. They're all dead, Groove. We're the only ones left to hold back a world of shit. She gave you the car. It's your turn now, man. If you don't like it, you can walk the hell back to whatever it is you call a life. 
I think better on the highway. We then break into the first mission. This is a fairly straightforward tutorial mission where Taurus teaches you how to drive, how to use your map and your notepad. The game is interesting in that your map is non-interactive. It's a simple paper map drawn on the back of a paper bag or a napkin or, or something like that. And it's got the, the mission area denoted by major roads and landmarks. There's no you are here marker or anything like that. Just the point where you start and the aforementioned landmarks. You use your compass, your eyes, road signs, and those landmarks to situate yourself on the map. I think it's actually pretty novel and, um, and immersive of a way to deal with uh, navigation in this world. This is 1976. We don't have GPS. Groove isn't a complete moron, though. If you venture outside of the mission area, Groove will start commenting about how this ain't right. That's your sign to turn around and figure out where you took a wrong turn. If you go too far outside of the mission area, you will fail. The notepad is how you track your mission objectives. Uh, it's updated as you move through the mission. Right now, all it says is follow Taurus to sea graves. As Taurus gives you additional instructions, they will appear here. As you complete objectives, they will get crossed out. If you want more detailed instructions on how to use your weapons, radar, and basic driving skills, there's a standalone tutorial accessible from the main menu. Once you've gotten into this mission though, the assumption is that you've already run that or you're just gonna figure things out as you go along. So Taurus tells you that you're heading to the sound of sea graves. You follow him down the highway until he veers off on a shortcut. This gives you a chance to see kind of the difference between on-road and off-road driving, and there is in fact a difference. Eventually you make it all the way to sea graves where Taurus has a little job for you to do. Nice drive. Now let's get down to business. Find the Red Deacon fireworks stand on the corner. And? And blow it up. Just don't get too close when it goes. Blow it up? Red Deacon's up front of a bunch of pop. Taking care of business. Oh, easy, baby. <laughs> I think I see a little bit of jade in you, man. And now get over here. On fire! Old lines are cut! They've got us trapped in the wagon wheel down us south of Wilman! Sally, reload it! Help us! Anyone! Anyone! The wagon wheel south of Wilman! Eat lead, you jerk! That's just north of here. Let's go. What about the cops? Those ain't fireworks. People are dying. Follow me. Monkey Wrench, this is Stampede. Code Zebra. Some creepers are hitting the wagon with. Repeat, code Zebra. Wellman, Route 385. Standard rendezvous. Dig. Roger that code Zebra, Stampede. I'm on it. I think we might have found the guys I've been looking for. So that whole little sequence was actually totally in-engine, which I think is pretty cool. So you blow up the stand, and we find out the wagon wheel is under attack. You head on over there and enter your first car-on-car -car combat situation. Now, this is a relatively easy fight. Once you destroy a single enemy, the rest run away. You chase them down and you take them out. Again, it gives you a good idea of how combat works in I-76. So in trip mode, you mostly drive Jade's Picard Piranha. All the cars in Interstate 76 have fake names, but they're based on real-world cars of the late 60s and early 70s. 
Your Piranha is effectively a 1971 Plymouth Barracuda. Cars have a number of weapons hardpoints. The Piranha has two roof-mounted forward-facing hardpoints, one side-mount rear-facing hardpoint, and one dropper hardpoint. Any weapons except for droppers can be placed on any hardpoints, and of course only droppers can be placed on a dropper hardpoint. There are a fairly wide variety of weapons available to you throughout your trip. We'll get to see how you accumulate them in a little bit, but for now, let's just talk about the weapons themselves. Weapons are separated into five categories. First and most often used are the slug throwers. These include the basic 30 caliber, 50 caliber, and 7.62 millimeter machine guns, the 20, 25, and 30 millimeter cannons, and finally the Hades cannon that you come into near the end of the game. Each gun has its own stats, maximum ammo, rate of fire, damage per hit, and etc. The, uh, the 50 caliber machine gun is kind of the general workhorse of the slug throwers. Uh, the 7.62 millimeter does less damage per hit, but fires at a very high rate, so it actually can do more damage than the 50 cal. And then some people like the slower rate of fire and stronger punch of the different cannons. You begin the game with two 30 caliber machine guns, one facing forward and one facing to the rear. Next, we have rockets. You begin with a forward-facing fire right rocket. Uh, your pod holds 60 rockets and fires them in groups of three. These are dumb forward-firing rockets. They pack a punch, but don't do much splash damage, so you'll need to be fairly accurate with them. The vertical angle of your car also has a big effect on their launch trajectory. Fire them while you're going over a bump, and you will probably not hit your target. Aside from the fire right, you eventually gain access to guided missiles. The AIM-9, and that's not the number 9, that's 9, the German word for no, uh, is is uh, So the AIM-9 is a front or rear aspect missile. So if a target is coming right at you or driving right away from you or they're stopped, the missile will home in on them. If your target turns laterally, it will not track them. It'll just miss or fire straight ahead, something like that. The Dr. Radar missile is radar guided and pretty accurate, but you'll only get 10 of them per pod. So you really should save them for, a, let's say, a special occasion. Flamethrowers do massive damage at short range. They do damage to the internal structure of a car, so they'll you know take out the engine and stuff while bypassing armor. Mortars do area damage, but can be just as dangerous to you as they are to your enemies. Finally, there's the droppers, and I think the dropper weapons are quite cool. They're really appropriate to the car combat style gameplay of I-76. These dropper weapons sit under your rear bumper and drop out of the back of your car. They range from the Spy Hunter-inspired oil slick to the blocks dropper that dumps a cinder block onto the road behind you, all the way to full-on landmines, which are showcased in the intro. Finally, you have a single handheld weapon, a Colt 45 automatic. Once you get an enemy car's health bar down to the red zone, five shots from your 45 will kill the driver instantly. This is a good way to increase your salvage from a mission by leaving more of each car intact. The other cool thing about it is it's very satisfying to take five shots with your 45, and then you don't see it, but you hear effectively the car driver of the car slump over and rest his head on the horn. So you shoot your 45, and then you just hear and the and the enemy car comes to a halt. Now, the drawback of the 45 is that it can only be fired out your side windows. So you'll have to switch your view and get an enemy into your sights on either side of your car 
which is not necessarily an easy task when everyone's driving around trying to kill each other. So you end off the first mission by defeating the creepers and saving the Wagon Wheel Diner. This brings you to the management portion of the game. As you destroy enemies, they throw salvage out across the field. You now enter Skeeter's domain. Skeeter, codenamed Monkey Ranch, is the third member of your little band. He drives a cargo van and acts as your support vehicle between missions. After the mission, you're presented with a salvage screen. It displays all the available salvage which can be collected and stored in the van. This is how you gain new weapons and equipment to upgrade your car with. So, but you can't just grab everything. There's a limited amount of space in the cargo van. So once you decide which parts you want to take with you, you move to the equipment repair screen. This screen allows you to manage every aspect of your car. Depending on what you've picked up in salvage, you can upgrade not only your weapons, but your engine, brakes, suspension, tires, and a few special items that can boost your engine output, give armor bonuses, make you harder to hit, and stop your car from flipping over. Flipping over causes your car to, shall we say, explode. In addition, you can also make repairs here. Now, if you don't repair your car, the damage to your car and your equipment and your armor and all of that carries over from mission to mission. There's three different states of repair. There is basically white, which is no damage at all. There's green, which is slightly damaged. Yellow, moderately damaged. Red is heavily damaged. And then if the spot on your car is empty, that piece of equipment has been destroyed and will need to be replaced. So Skeeter can do a limited amount of repairs between each mission. Usually there's enough to do whatever is damaged on your car, plus a couple of things that you pick up. Between missions is also where you can save your game. Even here, you get some indications that you aren't just playing through the missions willy-nilly. Each mission is in fact referred to by the game as a scene. And even through this kind of like management interface, you see kind of the I don't know if it's origin inspired because the first time I talked about this, I was talking about Wing Commander, but the game really does go far to keep you in the world. The repair and salvage screens look like pads of paper. The options screen is the check from a diner. The save interface is a notepad for taking orders at a diner. There's all these little things where, you know, there's never like, I am the save interface, please click the button to save the game. It's never anything like that. It's There's always these little things that everything's in handwriting or whatever. It's very, very immersive and it's really, really cool. So once all this management stuff is done, each mission is separated by at least one cutscene, setting up what you'll have to do along with further instructions while you're out in the field as you heard in the first mission. The story progresses quite quickly. You soon learn that the man that shot Jade is named Antonio Malocchio, which if you're Italian, you know what the Malocchio is. It's the evil eye. An event occurs very fairly early in the game that separates Taurus from his car, which leaves him riding with Skeeter in the van for the rest of the game and you kind of on your own doing all the heavy lifting. You come to uncover Malocchio's plot, which involves a hydrogen bomb, OPEC, and the Texas oil sands. As can be predicted... The game comes to a head at Fort Davis, Texas in a showdown between Groove Champion and Antonio Malocchio with the fate of the U.S.'s oil supply in the balance. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. 
time for... Now, we're going to get into this into a lot more detail eventually, but Interstate 76 was a very interesting game from a technical point of view. It required, at minimum, a Pentium 90 megahertz, 16 megs of RAM, 80 megs of hard drive space, a quad spin or four times or 4x, whatever you want to call it, whatever you called it at the time, CD-ROM, and a Sound Blaster or 100% compatible sound card. Graphically, the game required at least a VESA Local Bus or PCI video card with 2 megs of RAM. It ran in 640x480 VGA or 800x600S VGA at 16-bit high color. I'm not sure if the original version ran in 1024x768, but later versions definitely also ran at 1024x768. Uh, it also it supported 3DFX's Glide, 3D acceleration technology for high-res textures and effects. I mean... We were really getting up there, getting into kind of the whole 3D world at the time this game was uh, was about. Now, the game ran on a heavily modified version of the MechWarrior 2 engine. MechWarrior 2 had come out the year before in 1995, and as we'll see, the producers on this game had worked on that project uh, very, very heavily. In fact, were, uh, were fairly senior members of that team. Now, even more than MechWarrior, this was a cool-looking game. Despite the fact that the cars are all based on real-world muscle cars of the 70s, the game is very stylized. For the characters, the artists went a very interesting direction. The characters were rendered in relatively low polycount 3D. This was in very small part due to technological limitations, but um, it was also an aesthetic the designers were actually going for. The animation and movements of the characters were incredibly smooth and lifelike, but they didn't have any expression. Most game characters wore dark sunglasses, and nobody had mouths. The voice acting was top-notch, so emotion was expressed via voice and via body movement, but not by facial expressions. Now, it sounds very, very odd, but, you know, either if you're going to play the game, you'll see it, or go check out a Let's Play, go check out some YouTube videos, and you will get it right away. It's, it's really quite interesting. We'll get into the reasoning for that in the dev story, but for now, just suffice it to say, very cool style that they chose for this game. Each cutscene was crafted like a movie scene. Lighting, blocking, camera positioning, angles, music, everything was paid attention to. Of course, any game like this would be incredibly incomplete without music. Management of the game's music fell to Kelly Rogers, Activision's in-house music director at the time. After going through many, many demo tapes, Kelly hooked up with Jason Slater, who owned a music studio in the Bay Area. Slater sent off a demo of a group of funk musicians he had worked with. The leader of this group of musicians was Arian Salazar. He was brought on to compose the awesome 70s funk score you are hearing right now. Like the voice acting, the score of I-76 is top notch. Salazar recorded the soundtrack under the name of Bullmark. 
but of course he would be best known as one of the founding members of the band Third Eye Blind. Salazar played bass and brought on Santana keyboardist Tom Coster and Brian Mantia on the drums. Mantia's credits included playing with bands like Primus and Guns N' Roses. Like MechWarrior 2, the audio tracks were stored as Redbook Audio on the game CD. So not only could you play the game on your computer, but you could pop the disc into any CD player and funk it up wherever you wanted. Just remember to skip track one or you're going to get an awesome blast of static when your CD player tries to read that data track. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev story time. Interstate 76 is an Activision game. As I mentioned, it came right on the heels of a massively popular Mech Warrior 2. Interstate 76 was spearheaded by Sean Vesh and Zach Norman. Sean studied software development and went on to a fine arts degree at USC. After school, he joined Activision, worked on a couple of projects, and would eventually lead the design team for the hit big robot simulation, Mech Warrior 2. Before entering the game industry, Zach Norman had written several screenplays and done some smirk as an actor. He joined Activision in 1994 and became a designer and writer for, you guessed it, Mech Warrior 2. So the two men bonded over Mech Warrior, which we discussed back in episode 15. So, it's 1995, MechWarrior 2 just released, and Sean and Zach were at lunch discussing what they could do next with the technology they had in hand from Mech 2. They were throwing out all kinds of ideas. What about a helicopter sim? What about this? What about that? Blah, 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 back and forth. Nothing was really piquing their fancy, interesting them, anything like that. Now, this whole time, Zach was flipping through a car classifieds magazine as he was looking to buy himself a muscle car. Between ideas for their next sim games, they'd ogle the muscle cars. Oh, look at that Barracuda. Look at that Mustang. Look at that Challenger. They quickly realized the inspiration for their next game was staring at them in the face. They would create a 1970s muscle car combat sim that was heavy on horsepower and heavy on funk. So with their idea in mind, they started crafting their pitch to Activision execs. Their initial pitch was a disaster. The VP of production hated it but the two continued hounding him. Armed with a comprehensive software design document containing excerpts from the in-progress script, the concept art, examples of gameplay, they just kept at it. With that and the promise that they would be using the existing MechWarrior 2 engine, which would, you know, save a bunch of money in development costs, they were greenlit. They were given a small budget with which they gathered a small team of developers and designers who were equally passionate about cars in the 70s, and they created a small prototype. Finally, the execs loved it, and they gave it full approval. Interstate 76 was intended to be the most realistic auto combat simulation ever made. As good as the MechWarrior 2 engine was, it was designed with large, hulking, slow-moving battle mechs in mind, not the fast-paced action of a muscle car dogfight. It was quickly concluded that despite their promise to save money and use the Mech 2 engine, it could not be used in its original state. It was decided that each subsystem or module of the Mech 2 engine would be ported over into the new, I guess, Interstate 76 3D engine one by one. 
In this migration process, it would be decided based on the specific module's capabilities versus the new requirements, whether or not that module would simply be modified from the BaseMech2 source code, or if it would be rewritten completely. Ultimately, almost the entire engine was rewritten and they were left with something that was light years ahead of the competition. So they had a great game engine, but this wasn't enough for the team. They wanted to tell a great story as well. One that was reminiscent of the 70s TV show and movies they all loved. To do this, they needed a great story and great characters. Zach Norman, with his background in screenplay writing and acting, took on the task. He spent at least a month developing the characters, their motivations and mannerisms. Taurus, or Stampede, was especially interesting. Even today, we frankly don't see many black main characters in video games. This is sort of a follow-up to our discussion last time about women in games. While all the characters were caricatures of 70s TV icons, Taurus was the achievement. He was described as Shaft, Superfly, and Samuel L. Jackson all rolled into one. On top of that, Taurus is a poet. Looking out the window of your room onto a wet, rainy day, Main Street under a slate-gray afternoon sky. The light on your face is soft and dim under the lace curtain and the streets are empty. In the distance, there is a flash and a rumble. Clouds sail the sky like giant wooden ships on a blackened evergreen sea capped with foam. (laughs) That's great, isn't it? Along with great writing, the team needed great acting. Taurus was voiced by Greg Eagles, a prolific voice actor who's been on shows like Dexter's Lab, Powerpuff Girls, and Spawn. He's also done voices in Metal Gear Solid, EverQuest 2, Quake 4, Star Trek Bridge Commander, much more. Tom Kane, who's become basically the modern de facto voice of Yoda in almost all of his incarnations from Clone Wars to video game appearances, uh, he voiced Skeeter, the mechanic. And finally, the incomparable John DeLancey, yes, Q himself from Star Trek The Next Generation, voices Antonio Malocchio. They came to rescue you. Such loyalty. Oddly, I find myself moved. But in a handful of hours, their loyalty, along with most of their physical being, will be but vapor and memory. Why? Money. They pay me well, young champion. But it's a shame I don't have time to chat. A challenge. I'd be happy to hasten your reunion with your sister by a few hours. But hurry, please. We do not have much time. Since they were going for a cinematic feel for this game, you'd expect the first thing to pop into people's minds given the time frame, the late 90s, would have been, of course, full motion video. Well, that thought did enter their heads. It quickly left. One of the original goals of the project was to experiment with blurring the lines between the interactive and non-interactive portions of the game. To achieve this goal, the designers needed to maintain a consistent visual style across both aspects of the game. The original intent was that all cinematics would be rendered in-engine. This was another of the major contributing factors to the rewrites of the MechWarrior 2 engine, because it just frankly couldn't handle anything like that. However, When it came down to it, as it generally does, schedule constraints and money constraints didn't let them achieve this goal completely. The compromise was this. 
cutscenes that required characters and close-ups and anything like that would not be rendered in-engine, but would be pre-rendered using in-game assets. So car models, everything like that would be included, but also the low-poly stylized characters. Those pre-rendered cinematics were then streamed off of the CD. Now, that's not to say that in-mission cutscenes were not done in-engine. They were, but kind of the big, really fancy cutscenes were pre-rendered. The team, frankly, said that they were not big fans of the Hollywood-Silicon Valley convergence. Now, this may have been a deep-seated philosophical belief, but frankly, it also may have just been because they lacked anyone with the skill set to properly direct and produce FMV. And also, FMV shoots were incredibly time-consuming and expensive. This pre-rendered, low-poly, stylized solution checked all the boxes for them, so they went with it. Another major challenge to the development of I-76 was the AI model. Now, each AI player in the game, Taurus included, had to handle all aspects of a fairly complex auto-combat simulation. So, on top of major AI objectives like destroy gas station and attack player character, they also had to handle the minutia of driving their cars, including negotiating changes in surface, handling car damage, and more. I mean, if someone's tire blew out, they had to figure out reveal, or know how to keep the car going straight, everything like that. So much of the AI development time and CPU cycles and all that was used getting the cars to drive at all. So sadly, not much time was left to develop the combat model. The enemy AI in the game isn't incredibly intelligent. Teams of creepers never really work together or anything more advanced like that. So Interstate 76 released in March of 1997 and reviewed quite well. Players enjoyed the unique style, fast-paced gameplay, involving story, and interesting game world. It was so successful, in fact, that a standalone expansion named Interstate 76 Nitro Riders released later that same year. Now this pack is a prequel with the final mission taking place two days before the introduction of Interstate 76. In Nitro Riders, Jade, Taurus, Skeeter, and others uncover the conspiracy that becomes central to the story of Interstate 76. This pack features more missions, more vehicles, but generally the same gameplay as the main game. In 1999, we saw the release of Interstate 82. Six years have passed since the event of Interstate 76. It's now, obviously, 1982, and Groove Champion has gone missing. You take on the role of Taurus as he tries to discover where his friend has gone. This leads him to uncover a new conspiracy that goes up to the top levels of the U.S. government. Gameplay in I-82 is somewhat simplified, actually, from I-76. Car damage is displayed by a single health bar instead of the armor-slash-chassis system of I-76. Enhancements to the game, though, allow you to exit your car and enter a new car, in addition to skinning new cars you acquire through the game. Interstate 76, as I said way back in the beginning, also spawned a spin-off series known as Vigilante 8. This is a three-game series that debuted on the original PlayStation. The last game, Vigilante 8 Arcade, released on Xbox Live Arcade in 2008. So I thought there was no news on the future of Interstate 76, but it looks like I was mistaken. Some quick googling revealed a press release from May 16th, 2013, so just over a month ago now, for a game called Auto Duel. It's being put together by a company called Pixel Bionic. 
Pixel Bionic was founded by Max Kaufman, one of the original founders of Inexile Entertainment, the company that's developing Wasteland 2 and the new Planescape Torment successor, uh, Tides of Numenera. Planescape, I said it, Planescape, not Planetscape, because I'm an idiot and I've been saying Planetscape my whole life until someone corrected me. Thank you to all those guys. Uh, anyways, <laughs> Pixel Bionic has hired God of War and Twisted Metal designer David Jaffe to develop AutoDuel, a PC-based vehicular combat game. Aside from Jaffe, they're employing an advisory board containing some people, but none other than Zach Norman himself, the designer and writer of Interstate 76 that we have just discussed. A few articles around the net say the Kickstarter will be launching soon, so as usual, I will keep my eyes out and let you know. Hi, I'm Francisco Ruiz. And together with my good friend Paul Powers and a rotating guest host, we make up the Retro Rewind podcast. Twice a month, we pick a movie or video game from 15 or more years ago and discuss whether it is still worth revisiting today. So if you've thought about rewatching The Rocketeer, playing back through Mega Man X, or you're just a child of the 70s and 80s like us, you should check us out for laughs, for nostalgia, and definitely for our take on what's a classic and what's second class. Find us at RetroRewindPodcast.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes, RSS, and more. So where can we get Interstate 76 today? Well, both Interstate 76 and Interstate 82 are available for download on GOG.com for $5.99 each. Right now, I mean, right now, I think I have a couple more days. I'm not sure how long it lasts. GOG is having their no DRM summer sale, so you can actually pick them up for half price, $2.99 each for each of these games. With I-76, you're getting the Nitro Pack, which contains the main game and the expansion. This version has 3D better 3D accelerator support, which I will talk a little bit more about in a little bit. So before we get to the verdict, uh, let's go over our one email that we got this week from Chris. It came in just under the wire. You made it just in time, Chris. So let's see what Chris has to say. Greetings, Joe. First of all, my compliments on a fantastic podcast. I look forward to every episode, regardless of whether I'm familiar with the subject matter. The time frame covered in your podcast coincides with the span where I was able to spend a fair amount of time playing and enjoying computer games, although my computer use does go back quite a ways to the early 1980s. My father worked for a local university, which hosted one of the first summer Atari computer camps for grades 1 to 6 in 1982, and as a result, we had an Atari 400 and 800 for our home use. That led to an Apple IIgs in 1987, and finally our first IBM PC, an 8286 12MHz in 1990. Summers of caddying at one of the local golf courses and assorted other work enabled me to put a very early Sound Blaster card in that machine, and we progressed through the later iterations of numbered processors every few years. I enjoyed adventure games most of all, especially the graphical Sierra titles, but played games from all genres, including quite a few hours in various simulators. I started as a freshman in college in 1996, and while I can't recall exactly when I acquired Interstate 76, I do remember buckling down to finish a large school project and then booting up the game for the first time. I'm very glad you're covering this game as I seem to remember it not receiving a huge amount of publicity. The graphics and music were quite impressive for the time, and the frame rate and fluidity were quite good on a basic Pentium 90 without a dedicated 3D graphics card. I don't think I had the detail turned all the way up, but I don't remember feeling like I had to sacrifice anything either. 
You've said it many times about various games before, and it holds true here. This game was just plain fun. Combining the elements of a driving simulator with a compelling mission-driven campaign a la X-Wing or Wing Commander sounds interesting enough. Throw in the 1970s, muscle cars, and some awe-inspiring explosions, and you really got something good. Unfortunately, I did not have a chance to replay Interstate 76 prior to writing this email, so my specific memories on missions and the like are not very precise. But I do remember a few elements that make me smile to this day. I spoke of explosions earlier, and I recall a mission where a large service station is blown to bits in a hail of gunfire and rockets. This was pretty early on in the game, and I remember the camera pulling back to reveal the ensuing carnage. Pretty cool. The other memorable element was the poetry. The omnipresent voice of Groove's sidekick could be called to recite a poem on your at your whim with a key combination, and it was this kind of attention to detail and humor that really made this game stand out. The voice acting, especially the aforementioned narrator slash sidekick, was spot on. I can still huh, I, I can still hear the Groove check your map as I went speeding off in the wrong direction. In closing, this game offered a little bit of everything. Some simulation, an interesting challenging single player campaign, nifty vehicles, and an interesting world. I look forward to your coverage on the finer points of Interstate 76 and appreciate the opportunity to contribute to the podcast. Thanks for keeping the DOS and pre-Windows XP era of gaming alive. Covering these older games brings an amazing wave of nostalgia and it is certainly fun to look back. Well, thank you so much chris that was a great email great memories of i-76 and uh you know actually when you mentioned the the atari computer camp for grades one to six that that's 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 pretty cool i i went to i guess a similar computer camp i think i may have talked about it a little bit before probably from when i was maybe nine or ten to thirteen or fourteen and you know we did all kinds of this was later on i guess so um definitely not in 1982 uh, probably in the 90s, so we were doing stuff. I remember the we had 486 DX4 100s, and I thought those were these crazy machines because I had a 486 DX266 at home, and my friends had 486 DX33s. So these things were incredible, and you know they were on a network, and we learned. You know, earlier on we did programming type stuff with Logo Writer, and then I went on into learning some Basic, and then even some very very early uh, VB, maybe VB five or something earlier than that scripting i remember i made like this dumb game where you clicked buttons and you fought and whatever so you know i think it's it's really great that there's you know these outlets for for kids to be into computers and and learn how they work and obviously then it was much more challenging because they weren't as prolific and you know now there's all kinds of different little programming languages that kids can learn and you know even something as, as basic as minecraft can really show them how how things work and and how to find add-ons and 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 do stuff like that. But on top of that, there's there's different kind of entry-level programming languages that uh, that are geared more towards kids or very early learning. So that's that's pretty cool. So it's cool to see that 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 stuff is still going on today. So thanks for the comments on the game. I, I hope uh, I covered it to uh, to your satisfaction, and uh, I hope that you will email again soon and keep listening. Thank you very much, and everyone else again. Feel free to. Uh, Email in and give me your thoughts. As always, podcast at umbcast.com. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So, big question of the show. Does Interstate 76 hold up today? Well, I'm saying this a lot, but it's not as straightforward as all that. 
I downloaded the version of Interstate 76 from GOG.com onto my Intel i7 running Windows 8. What I will say to begin is it is most likely that if you have anything beefier than a Pentium 4, this game will not run properly out of the box. Uh, you're given two options in which to play this game, software render mode and glide mode. To get the 3DFX glide mode working at all, it looks like you need a glide wrapper such as DigiVoodoo or NGlide or, or something like that. Out of the box, frankly, in my experience, it just won't work. Even with the wrappers, I couldn't get 3DFX mode working on my Windows 8 machine. I like playing these games at their best, but I can live with software rendering if it's the difference between playing the game and not playing the game. So I booted it up in software mode. Yay, the game works. I watched the intro, I got into the first mission, and right away I noticed something odd. Taurus is talking, and he should be driving up the highway, but his car's bouncing around like he's going insane. It's turning every which way, braking, and uh, the in-engine mission cutscenes are taking way too long to end because the cars are not getting to their checkpoints to, to end the cutscene. Well, it turns out the driving AI in the game is somehow directly related to either the clock speed of the CPU or, at the very least, the overall performance of the system it's running on in general. An i7 is seemingly way too much machine for it, and it causes the AI to totally flake out, making the game basically unplayable. Now, there's two big threads on the GOG forums with potential solutions, and here's what I did to get it running. So I rolled things over to my old Dell Inspiron laptop. I did this for two reasons. One, it's a Core 2 Duo, so it's quite a bit slower than my i7 gaming rig. And two, it's running Windows XP, which tends to be a little more compatible with this older stuff, and it also, I've, I've had success on XP with uh, the 3D uh, FX wrappers. So using DG Voodoo on the laptop, I was able to enter 3D FX mode, and trust me, if you can swing it, play this way. The game looks much nicer. Uh, in 3D FX mode, the machine was bogged down enough that uh, I only occasionally had the too fast AI bug. Uh, since I'm experimenting a little bit with potentially doing some video of me playing for the podcast, I also had Fraps running at 30 frames per second, so that helped slow things down even more. This allowed me to play the game fairly consistently, aside from occasional texture mess-ups on the explosions and stuff like that. Uh, though the result of that was my Fraps recordings and 3DFX didn't come out very well. The game engine went all rainbow-colored in the recordings, even though the game looked fine on the screen when I was playing. Uh, I also played in software mode since that recorded more cleanly. There, I had to download CPU Killer and set my Core 2 Duo to a consistent 65% usage to get the game speed down. Another option is to set the game to only use a single core of your multi-core CPU. This is referred to as setting processor affinity. Uh, basically, lots of little tweaks are needed to get this game working right at all. But here's the thing that really infuriates me. This game is incredible. If you can get it running properly, it's so much fun. It looks great with the stylized cutscenes. You really do feel like it's this whole immersive experience. And the game isn't that hard. And the story is very, very, very well told. If this game was trash, I'd have no problem not recommending it to anyone, but it isn't. So if you feel like you can put up with an hour or so of fiddling and reading the forms and getting it going on your particular setup, or if you have an old Pentium 4 lying around, this game really deserves to be played. If not, save the frustration, watch some Let's Plays, and at least give it a look. 
I-76 has always been a backdoor favorite of mine. It wasn't a hugely popular game when it came out, and I really do feel like it's a hidden gem that many, many people would enjoy. So that's it. Thanks to Chris for the email this week. Uh, I know this game isn't as well known as some of the others I've covered, but uh, I hope I've piqued your interest a little bit. And if anyone does give it a go between now and the next show, definitely let me know. I, I'd love to read your emails on your your initial, at the very least, um, memories of the game or experiences with the game, or if you had trouble get it running like I did, anything like that. Next week, I'm going to cover another of the big guys. I haven't covered an adventure game series for quite a while, and I think it's finally time to do one of my all-time favorites, Monkey Island. So, it's a LucasArts show next time. I know you guys will have lots to say about Mr. Guybrush Threepwood and his piratey adventures. As always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can always find him at moyermultimedia.com. Uh, check out the show notes at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We have a lot of fun over there, a lot of action going on the past little while, having some fun posting news stories and discussions and, and all that kind of stuff. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. You can follow me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476 if you want to hear me complaining about what I had for lunch. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio. You leave us some reviews, leave me, there's no us, there's just me, some reviews over there, five stars if you love the show. I'd appreciate it very much. And that is that. We will see you next time for Monkey Island here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.